Uh, church, it's great to see you guys again today. And if this is a first time, a first time in a long time, we started this series back in the fall on the life of Jesus Christ from eternity past all the way to eternity still future. And we're continuing that uh, still today. We are kind of out of the teaching ministry of Jesus and we've moved into some of the different encounters that he had with various people. And so um, the story that we're going to be looking at today uh, is going to launch us into Palm Sunday and the Passion Week. It's actually uh, a story of two sisters. It's pretty familiar, Mary and Martha. Uh, the reality of the pain that they're experiencing in that moment, and then specifically how Jesus goes and interacts with them and brings them through that pain um, into a sustained faith into the Passion Week uh, right there. So if you have your Bibles, John chapter 11 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, you can go ahead and turn there, and if you didn't bring it with you, I'm going to be putting some of these passages up on the screen, uh, so it'll be easy for you to follow along. But um, probably don't need to say this, but um, pain is one of the major things that keeps people from coming to faith or keeps people from remaining in the faith today. I don't know if you guys remember Ted Turner. Um, anybody remember Ted Turner? He was a lot more famous, 80s, 90s, and stuff like that. But he's the founder of CNN, TBS, multi-billionaire television conglomerate, also a very, very famous atheist. Uh, that was very outspoken many years ago, not so much anymore. Um, but I was reading this story uh, a little while ago about what led him to actually walk away from the faith? Because believe it or not, he was actually raised in a Christian home. His entire family had a uh, very strong faith. They were involved in the Baptist church. And um, he tells a story in this article I was reading about how it was somewhere around the time that his sister was 12 years old and she came down with lupus. I don't know if you know anything about lupus, but this particular um, kind that she had was very, very, it moved very quickly, tore apart her body. She was in constant pain all the time, just... Uh, he talked about how night after night she would be awake screaming and crying all night long, the agony of what she was going through. Uh, her body quickly started to waste away. And, and meanwhile, his father would gather the family together and they would pray and say, God, would you come and bring relief and would you bring pain or would you bring healing to uh, my daughter, Ted's sister and stuff in, this, in, the, in the time. And, and it got to the point where it just felt like as a family that God wasn't hearing their prayers. And so his father comes out and just simply says one day, and he says, okay, if this is who um, the God of the Bible is, if he's not going to listen and interact, then I want nothing to do with this God. Somewhere around 53 years old, um, Ted's father went upstairs and ended up taking his life. And um, Ted talks about it in this article, and he goes and he says, he says, that was the time that I was done uh, with my faith. If God was not going to be listening to our prayers and he was not going to be intervening in the middle of our pain, I could not understand how a good and holy, loving God uh, would allow such things to be taking place in my family that day. And I think a lot of us might be able to resonate a little bit with what he's talking about right there. We know what it's like to be in the fog of our pain, where the only thing that you can see is the things that you're experiencing right there and then in that moment. I love the way Frank Turek talks about it. He says it like this. He says, when thousands of people die, he says it's headline news to most people. But when one person you know and love suffers, your whole world turns upside down. And the only question that you have is why? Why God, oh why? And for a lot of us today, like that may be exactly where uh, we are. You walked into this room and that's the question that you've been asking God for quite a long time in the middle of my pain and my sadness, you know that this is a season of my life where um, we have been crying together a lot as a family. We've been crying out, God asking you to come and to bring relief. And Father, it seems like you're silent. Why, God, oh, why? 
are you allowing me to go through this pain over here? For some of you, you're, you're mourning. It's been six to eight months, and you're still looking for the job, and you're kind of wondering, how in the world are we going to pay these bills? How am I going to pay back this credit card debt? How in the world are we going to get out of this situation? And for some of you, it's one to two to three years, and you're kind of sitting there going, Lord, what in the world are you doing in my pain? And for some of us, it's the prodigal child that still hasn't returned home. And for some of us, it's the diagnosis that you got about a parent or a spouse, latter years, it's dementia or cancer or whatever it may be, and you just got that. And you're in the middle of that pain in that morning going, Lord, what in the world are you doing in the middle of this season of my life? It's exactly what Jesus is going to help us with in this passage that I want to look at today. So if you have your Bible, John chapter 11 is where we're going to be. Um, actually, again, like I said, this is a pretty familiar passage. It's going to be Jesus' interaction uh, with two sisters, Mary and Martha of Bethany. And like I said a little bit ago, this is actually going to be one of the main events that's going to lead us into the Passion Week, uh, which we're launching essentially today. And so if you've been tracking along with us in our series, we're going to be rewinding a bit because in the past number of weeks, we've already been in the Passion Week taking a look at a number of his interactions. So we're going to rewind a little bit and take us back to the time um, just before Palm Sunday, um, and we're going to see this in a little bit, but it's going to kind of play into the faith and the practice of what takes place during this Passion Week. And so let's jump into it. Chapter 11, verse 1. It's going to kick off like this and say, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. Now, real quick, you guys remember this story from Matthew 26? Um, we've been tracking in this, and I spent a lot of time preaching all around Matthew 26. Uh, this is a really, really weird thing that Matthew does in his passion narrative, the last week of Jesus' life. Um, he sticks it in this place in the middle of the story, um, which is leading into the last day, just before the Passover dinner, this, uh, one of the final days of Jesus right here. And he inserts this story that's not in chronological order. And so what, what he's talking about right here, where, where Mary uh, anoints Jesus' head and feet with perfume, this actually takes place the day before Palm Sunday. Nevertheless, Matthew sticks it in right there in the middle of the narrative in order to draw out this contrast between the faith of Mary um, as Jesus moves to the cross and the faith of the disciples, which is still incredibly lacking. Okay, and it's this beautiful scene. You remember, this is, this is Mary's story. She, um, she recognizes who Jesus is, and, and in this time of worship, she's sitting there. Uh, they're in Bethany. They're in the home of a Simon, uh, the previous leper who's been healed by Jesus. By the way, Bethany was probably a hospice town. It was just on the outskirts of Jerusalem. So as people are coming up to Jerusalem in order to worship, the sick, the lame, those who may be defiled and not worthy enough to worship, terrible practice. Nevertheless, that's how it was back then. And so they would leave them there in Bethany in order to be cared for during that time. It's likely Mary and Martha, that maybe they ran a hospice out of their home. Uh, nevertheless, this day before Palm Sunday, they're having this dinner in Simon the leper's home, and Mary makes this scene. She breaks open this alabaster vial of perfume. It's this, or it's a, no, it's not the alabaster, it's the uh, uh, expensive jar, jar of nard is what it is. It's a perfume. It's worth about a, a year's worth of pay. And you remember what happens. She breaks it open, pours it over Jesus' feet and his head, anoints him with this oil, and Judas gets really, really upset about it, and so do the other disciples because they're saying, okay, why in the world is this woman wasting this beautiful, expensive perfume. And you remember exactly what Jesus says. Jesus rebukes the, fair, the, uh, the disciples, and he lifts up Mary, and he says, what she's doing is beautiful because she's anointing me for my burial. In other words, what Mary is
is doing right here is this beautiful expression of faith. She understands who Jesus is, what he's about to do. She knows that the cross is impending. She knows what's going to take place. And she doesn't even care about the disciples' criticism going on around her. She's simply caught up in the moment, worshiping at the feet of Jesus. And it's this beautiful, beautiful scene that Matthew happens to throw in there, um, not in chronological order, in order to make this contrast between the faith of the disciples, which is still lacking, and the beautiful faith of Mary, which is here in our text today. The story we're looking at right now, John 11, is the story which launches and propels Mary's faith and makes it so strong in Jesus. And so that's what he's saying right here. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus is now sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So verse 3, the sisters sent word to Jesus and said, Lord, the one whom you love is sick. In other words, we know who you are. We know that you've got power. We know that we're friends and that you love um, our brother Lazarus. We know that you can raise him from the dead if he goes that way. We know that you can heal him since he's sick. Will you come and do something about our situation? Verse 4, when Jesus heard this, he said to the disciples, the sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus too. And so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? And then he said to the disciples, now let us go back to Judea. After he had said this, he went on and he told them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. I love this next, next part. I was talking about how the disciples' lack of faith and their lack of understanding of some things. Check this out. The disciples replied, Lord, well, if he's asleep, he's going to get better, right? <laughs> Jesus obviously had been speaking about Lazarus' death. Uh, but his disciples thought that he meant natural sleep. Can you imagine that? Yeah, we're going to go back after a few days' time and wake him up from a nap. Um, nevertheless, the disciples, they're, they're lacking in, in a lot of faith and understanding right here. And so it says in verse 14, so then he told them play, plainly, a little eye roll going on, hey guys, Lazarus is dead. That's what I meant here. Um, I'm not going back to wake him up from a nap. And then he says in verse 15, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may be able to believe. Now let us go to him. And so what ends up happening is they end up going down to Bethany. Martha hears that Jesus is finally on his way at that point in time. Lazarus has already passed away. He's already dead, as Jesus just explained to the disciples. Martha goes out to meet him, and she simply says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother had not died. A few verses later, Mary's going to pick up on the same thing. She's going to come out a little bit later on, and she's going to say the same thing. And it says, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. It's a beautiful picture of Mary that we're going to see, that Mary is the disciple that is always at the feet of Jesus. You remember where she was the first time we meet him? Mary's got three prominent stories throughout Scripture. And the first time, Martha's serving furiously, and Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, learning as a disciple um, in the seminary that is the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. And she's sitting at the feet of Jesus, and Jesus applauds her and says, Mary, you've chosen the better thing to simply sit here and, and sit at my feet. She loves sitting at the feet of Jesus. Here she comes and she throws herself at the feet of Jesus. In Matthew 26, she goes and she, she, she anoints the feet of Jesus with this oil. She's always at the feet of Jesus. And now she's in the middle of her mourning. She comes out to Jesus, finds out that he's out there. She's in the middle of her mourning. She falls at Jesus' feet and says, Lord, again, if you had been here, my brother would not have passed away. In other words, Jesus, like, we know what you can do. And we know exactly who you are. We know the power that you have. We know that we're friends and we love each other. And we know that you love my brother Lazarus. Uh, so why in the world did you not do anything about the pain and the things that we're dealing with right now? Jesus, we sent this message to you days ago. 
and you sat on it. Jesus, like we were praying about this thing for a really long time and all we got from you was silence. Lord, what in the world are you doing in the middle of our pain? And of course, that's the question that we all have, right? Jesus, we were crying out for a long time and, and you don't understand like the amount of brokenness that's going on inside of my soul. Why in the world have you not done anything about my pain? What in the world are you doing in the middle of it all? Jesus is gonna help us get a little picture of a few things that, um, that he is doing in the middle of their pain. The first thing that he's gonna show us here is that, that no matter what, that he's trustworthy even when we can't understand the plan that's going on. We see that there in verse four. Um, he says this to the disciples when he gets word of what Lazarus, Lazarus is going through. He says, okay, well, um, the sickness is not gonna end in death. In other words, like, you can trust me. I know what's going to happen. I know the end. I know from what's going on right now. Uh, I know what's about to take place. And this sickness is not going to end in death. And beyond that, here's how it's all going to work out. It's all work out for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, let me ask you a question, church. Is that comforting to know that God is always working for the praise of his own glory? In the middle of your pain, okay, the middle of this thing, that whatever it is that you're going through, in the middle of your sadness, in the middle of your tears, is it comforting at all to know that God is always going to be working for the praise and glory of his name? Now keep in mind, right, this is not Jesus' response to Mary and Martha at this time. Right, this isn't, this isn't one of these things. We would never say that to anybody in the middle of grieving and pain. Hey, take courage because, hey, God's going to be glorified in the middle of this, right? Like that's, that's not what you do. You don't say that to people. It's not what Jesus says to Mary and Martha. This is from a distance in conversation with his disciples, but what he's saying is, hey, this is all going to result in the praise and glory of God and the praise and glory of the Son of God that he's going to be lifted up in the middle of it. Is that comforting at all to know that God is always working for the praise and glory of his own name? I mean, Westminster Catechism is going to say that um, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. In other words, like they're going to be looking at the entirety of Scripture from beginning all the way to end, and they're going to be saying, okay, uh, we're noticing this thing that whenever God chooses to move, he always chooses to move on behalf of his own name. He is always moving and working in such a way um, that people may know him well, that they may enjoy him in the context of relationship, and then in the context of that relationship that he may work through them all for the praise and glory of his name. In other words, uh, like we're looking at these things. It's what God is going to be saying through the prophet Jeremiah. You remember this? And we see this all the time. He says this. He says, um, he says uh, in the same way that shorts cling tightly to the body, he says, I bound the entire nation of Israel to me. In other words, um, he's saying that this is, the, this is the reason that I called them out and drew them into me. I intended for them to be my special people. And here it is, to bring me fame, honor, and praise, but they would not obey me. In other words, that is the reason that I called them out, that I would be their God, that they would be my people, that we would have this dynamic interactive relationship whereby they would honor me, I would bless them, and by watching them, the rest of the world would come to understand that I am the one true God, I would be glorified along the way. Like, this is what he does all throughout scripture. Paul's going to pick up on this in Ephesians chapter 1. Three different times in the first 14 verses, he's going to say the same thing. He predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters. Why? All for the praise and the glory of his name. Verse 12, we've been claimed as God's own possession. Why? All for the praise and the glory of his name. Verse 14, we have been sealed now by the Holy Spirit. He's given us his presence. He secured us for the day of salvation. Why? For the praise and for the glory of his name. Church, like he is always working for the praise and for the glory of his own name. And here it is. The reason that it's okay that he can do that when we can't is because, number one, like he's actually worthy of receiving that praise, glory, and honor. 
Right? That's the big difference between why he's able to do it. It's not incredibly narcissistic for him to be able to go do that, and we can't do the same thing. He's worthy of receiving that kind of praise, honor, and glory. When he spoke, the universe was created. He numbered the hairs upon our head. He knew us while we were in our mother's womb. He's the Alpha, the Omega, the first, the last, the beginning, the end, the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. He is the only one who is worthy of receiving that kind of praise, glory, and honor. Uh, Jonathan Edwards is going to put it like this. He's going to say, the pursuit of one's own glory um, is a problem only if the person doing it isn't absolutely worthy of that kind of glory, right? In other words, it's kind of like Millie Vanilli uh, getting a Grammy in 1990, right? It wasn't really their glory to receive, right? It's kind of the same thing, and it's what he's saying here. The reason he's able to do it when we can't is because that is his glory to receive, um, the second thing we're going to see is that the pursuit of God's glory uh, actually corresponds with our good. In other words, it's not like when we pursue our own glory. Because when God pursues his own glory, it's not oppressive like when we do it. He doesn't have to belittle other people in order to lift up his own name. He doesn't have to squash them. He doesn't have to repress them. He doesn't have to crush them underneath the entirety of his weight for his name to be lifted up. In fact, John is going to say that, that he's not just a loving God, but he actually is the very definition of love. And he's going to go on and he's going to say, okay, he's not just a God who likes morality and goodness, but he actually is the definition of righteousness, and he is perfect in holiness in all of his different ways. He's not just forgiving and likes that as a principle, but he is the one who emanates grace and freely dispenses it at his good pleasure. I mean, we see this even at the triumphal entry, right? The way that he glorifies himself and the way that he uses his power and authority. It's just not how most kings are going to go and announce the fact that they are the messianic king. I mean, we see this. I mean, how does he enter into Jerusalem? Travis talked about it just a minute ago. Like, he's not coming in with, with stallions and chariots and, and, and armies and things of the nature. He's coming in on the back of a donkey, and, and, and Texas can even tell us it's not even an awesome donkey, right? It's not even like one of these giant ones that looks like a horse or anything like that. It's, like it's, a, it's a young foal, meaning it's a tiny one. It's, it's not even uh, impressive to look at or anything like that. Zechariah is going to talk about, notice how he talks about this prophecy here. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 8. He's going to be talking about this day when the Messiah rides into Jerusalem. Here's how he describes it. Again, long before this actually takes place. Uh, he says, I'm going to encamp at the temple to guard it against marauding forces. Speaking of the Father. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people. For now I am keeping watch. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I'll take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations, and his rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Church, like that is how God pursues his own glory. Church, when he is glorified, there will be peace among the nations. When he is glorified, there's going to be peace among the people. When he is glorified, the sick are going to be healed, the lost are going to be found, the devalued will be valued, the oppressed will be completely set free. Even in verse 45, we're going to see revival breaks out when he's pursuing his own glory. It's going to say that many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did ended up believing in him. In other words, because he chose to wait two days, 
because he allowed Mary and Martha to experience a little bit of their pain, because he did what he did and he sought out his own glory in the middle of this thing, many other Jews who were observing what was taking place around them also came to believe and revival began to spread. In the very next chapter, we're going to find out that this crew is the crew that's there and they're waving those palm branches and screaming, Hosanna, 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 the God who saves. Why? Because they just saw Jesus come and perform a miracle whereby he raises Lazarus from the dead and saves him from death himself. They know exactly who he is. In verse 17, the very next chapter, we're going to find out that these are the ones who become the evangelists and tell everyone else that Jesus is the Messiah. It's going to say that they're the ones who continue to spread the word about Jesus because they've seen the power and what he can do. Church, no other miracle had this kind of impact like what happens here in chapter 11 in the raising of Lazarus from the dead. People are now beginning to believe. They're beginning to cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. You are the Messiah. You are the promised king. And they are laying down their palm branches, screaming that out as he is entering into Jerusalem that day. Church, like that is what it looks like when we talk about the fact that God pursues his glory and everything. Like he takes things that are painful and he completely redeems them and turns them into something that's beautiful. Church, hear me when I say he is a trustworthy king. And you may not be able to see what it is that's going on all around you, but he is a trustworthy king and you can rest in him. That's why Joseph in Genesis 50, he's talking to his brothers who sold him into slavery. And you remember what he says to them, right? He says this, he says, you meant evil against me, selling me into slavery. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result, in order to preserve many, many, many people alive. Church, it's exactly where Mary and Martha are. They're in the middle of the fog of their pain, where the only thing that they can see and understand in the middle of that is the fact that nothing in their life makes sense. They sent a memo to Jesus, and Jesus sat on it for a few days. And what Jesus is simply saying here is that, I've got this. I've got this. I'm a trustworthy king, and I know you can't understand what's about to take place, but I promise you the fact that I'm pursuing my own glory, it corresponds with your good, and that makes me trustworthy, and you can rest in the middle of that moment. I'll never forget one of my most powerful testimonies I've seen was about seven years ago, sitting at Northwest, and, and as a man named John Payne, um, anybody ever seen or read his biography? It's since come out late, The Luckiest Man. It's a beautiful book, beautiful biography that's, um, the story's told online too. There's a movie about it now. Um, I remember when he first came and began to talk about it, but he's a local guy here in Dallas who can, came, um, who got ALS. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and run this little video clip. I want you to hear it from them uh, rather than me trying to retell it here, and then we'll, we'll talk about it in just a minute. Every son thinks their dad hung the moon. I get it, but, but my dad hung the moon. Whatever broke at the house, he knew how to fix it. He was the strongest, he was the fastest. He always seemed to just be the winner of everything. He enjoyed the kids a lot. He worked a lot. I couldn't have put words to it at the time, but looking back, I realized he was bigger than life. He was commenting to me how his left arm, th this muscle right here, um, was twitching all the time. They did several tests on him, and he didn't have any idea. And she told us, you have ALS, and you have two to five years to live.
God's voice began to speak to me in my mind. He says, we're going to be spending a lot of time together. There's a few things that we need to talk about. opportunity to check out the rest of it, the fullness of his story, but I'll never forget sitting there that day when he came up and he got up on the stage and, and he's being interviewed that day talking about the fullness of his story and he just simply said, you know, he goes, uh, he goes, uh, I wouldn't trade getting ALS for anything else in the world. And he goes, before I got ALS, he goes, I never, I didn't know Jesus. I was comfortable in my life. I was comfortable in the different things that I was doing. And before I got ALS, I didn't know Jesus. And now that I have this, I know Jesus in a way that I never would have known before. He continued to talk and he said, I've gotten to this place in my relationship with my wife and with my family where I really didn't know my wife anymore. And I took her for granted. And now in the middle of my pain, I've been able to be reunited with her in a way that I never would have before. I don't regret having re ALS a day in my life. Church... And that's what he does in a lot of different ways. He's able to take the worst of our pain and take something that's absolutely evil. We call it evil. It is evil. It is not as God would ordain it or have it to be. And in the middle of that place, he completely turns it around and he redeems it and he turns it into something beautiful. And church, I don't know exactly where you are, what that fog may be. Maybe you're not in that place right now. Maybe that's coming tomorrow or the week after that. Or maybe it's a family member or someone that you love. And I don't know exactly where you are in the middle of that thing. But all I know is that he is a trustworthy king even when you don't understand how the whole thing's going to play out. It's exactly what he's trying to teach Mary and Martha here in the middle of their pain. The second thing he's going to show them here is that um, in Christ, your end is not actually the end. And we've talked about this one before, but I think it bears repeating a little bit. But in Christ, your end is not actually the end. I want you to notice the way that he encourages Martha. And it's going to be different than the way that he encourages Mary. And I love this about Jesus is that he, he meets people where you are. He knows what you need. And so Martha needs an explanation and Mary needs a hug and some tears. Martha's going to get the explanation. So here's what takes place. It's a theological kind of understanding of what's, what's happening. Verse 21, she comes to Jesus and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus said to her, well, your brother's going to rise again. And Martha said to him, well, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, no, 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 like I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Martha, do you believe this? In other words, I know that you're hurting right now. And I know that you're in the middle of an incredible amount of pain. And I know that nothing makes a whole lot of sense. But what I want you to understand is that even if this were to be his last day on earth, his end would not actually be the end. His end would be the beginning of a brand new eternity that's spent in my presence. There will be a resurrection, and in as much as anyone believes in me, he will live even if he dies. 
Church, it's exactly what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 15 when he's talking about the resurrection on the last day. Um, and he says that in a moment, everything's going to change, and we're going to have a brand new resurrected body. It's going to be without blemish. It's going to be without pain. And we're going to be able to sing in the presence of God and say things like, where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Disease, where is your finality? Loneliness, where is your bitterness? Disappointment, failure, rejection, where is your devastation? Church, what would it look like if you and I were able to grieve in the middle of our pain, but we were able to grieve in a way that remembered everything that's still to come? I mean, I'll never forget this scene, the movie The Shack. If you, if you ever, how many of you guys saw the, the book or the read, read the book, saw the movie of The Shack? Um, anybody read the, the reviews online? And the, anyway, here's my take on the movie, by the way. Don't get your Trinitarian theology from the movies. Get it from the Bible. Um, it's why we have it. It's pretty good at giving us theology and stuff, so... Anyway, if you saw this movie, it's a, it's a beautiful story. Also, I'm also going to say, you're probably going to go see a lot worse movies than The Shack. Uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about at all, just don't worry about it. Um, so this movie comes out, and it's a beautiful movie about, um, tr- about how God tries to interact with us in the middle of our pain. And so the story is that there's a guy named Mac, and he loses his little girl very early on in the movie, and it's this horrific scene um, and you see Max spiral out of control. He begins to lose his faith, and he's sitting there wondering about the problem of pain, and he's going, okay, Lord, what are you doing in the middle of this thing? And so he comes out, and, um, and he gets this letter, and, and this is supposedly a letter from God, leads him out to the shack in the middle of the woods, and so he goes out to, to go to the shack, and of course, that's where God, um, in Trinitarian form, begins to interact with him on a number of different levels in order to bring him through his pain, okay? And so um, in one of these scenes that he's in the middle of his grieving and he's in the middle of really cursing God and he's really frustrated and angry and, and it's this horrific, painful thing. But he has this conversation with the personification of wisdom and he's in the middle of this cave and he's just, he's just letting the personification of wisdom essentially um, really have it. Why in the world would you do this? Why, 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 why? And wisdom steps up and he begins to give Mac this picture of what's actually taking place with his daughter right then and there. And he gives Mac this picture of his daughter fully healthy, fully revived, body completely restored, running through the fields in the presence of the Father, enjoying life, laughing, peaceful, experiencing this bliss like you never had on earth ever again. And what the movie does is it shows you that it's the only thing that it took for Mac to be able to gain the peace that he so longed for. Immediately he broke down in tears and he began to weep as he began to think about the fact that, 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 that her end was not actually the end for her. That it was the beginning of this life spent in, in the presence of God. And it, it was the beginning of this life, that's, of this body that's fully healed. Church, what would it be like if we were able to live right now in light of the joy that is still to come? I mean, it's what Paul's trying to hold on to, as difficult as it is to be able to put ourselves in the middle of that place. This is the thing that keeps Paul sustained in the middle of all this torture, in the middle of all this suffering, in the middle of painful ordeal after painful ordeal. This is what he says. He says, uh, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, like they're not worthy to be compared to the glory which is still to come. In other words, I'm so fixated on this reality that's still to come, being in the presence of God, the hope of total and complete healing, that it's able to sustain me and the worst that this world is able to bring. Church, have you ever been to a funeral of somebody that, that they lived like that all the time? I mean, they, they knew their hope, which is about to come, and they looked forward to being in, that, being in the presence of God. I'll never forget my grandmother's funeral. It was absolutely like that. It was one of the most bizarre experiences I ever had. Um, she made it to 90 years old, and 
Uh, she was actually killed by a drunk driver at the time. And so she was going and blowing. She'd probably still be around. Uh, but she was going pretty strong. And she actually planned out her whole funeral. I remember going to this thing being like, this is the most bizarre experience in my, uh, that, I've, uh, that I've had at a funeral. Because she planned the whole thing out. And it was worshipful. Like the songs that she chose, like they were, they were raise the roof kind of um, praiseworthy songs. They weren't lamenting, um, you know, kind of songs. They were praise God type of songs. All the readings lent itself to that thing too. And we sat there just worshiping God. It was almost like a party at this funeral. And I'll never forget at the end of this thing, this is the really, really weird part. She wanted the, everybody who came to stand around her grave and to sing this song. And it was so weird. Here's the song. Um, it's, okay, bear with me here. Just plant a little watermelon on my grave and let the juice trickle through. <laughs> Just plant a little watermelon on my grave. It's all I ask of you. Now fried chicken is mighty, mighty fine. There's nothing quite as fine as a watermelon vine. So plant a little watermelon on my grave and let the juice trickle through. <laughs> I'm not joking, church. Like I, our whole family, all the friends, like everybody that came out there. I mean, we're standing around my grandmother's grave and we're singing this ridiculous song because my, my grandmother loved watermelon, right? Like she loved it. And, and, and she was so excited about being in the presence of God. And she lived that way and she planned that day. I mean, it was, just, it was like nothing else. And church, here's what I'm saying. is like, it's not to take away, it's not to minimize the pain of that moment because you better believe as a family, we sat there and we grieved. We grieved the loss of my grandmother, the fellowship, the relationship that was there, all of her love, everything that she brought to the table. Yet at the exact same time, there was an enormous amount of consolation knowing that this funeral was not actually her end. And that it was actually the beginning of something so much more glorious than anything that I could possibly imagine here in this day. And it's exactly what Jesus is helping Martha be able to see and understand right here. Like, yes, there is a resurrection, but if they believe in me this day, you will be alive with me right now. And it's this beautiful, beautiful thing. The end is not actually the end. The last one that he's going to be showing us is very simply this. The presence of pain does not mean the absence of love. The presence of pain does not mean the absence of love. Honestly, this is going to be one of the more beautiful passages we're going to read in Scripture in verse 32. I want you to see how he interacts with Mary. It says that when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And it says that when Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and he saw the Jews who came with her also weeping, it says that he was deeply moved in spirit and he was troubled. The word that he uses there implies that he was grieved to the point of anger. I don't know if you've ever experienced this before, but in the middle of pain, in the middle of trauma, whatever that may be, you're going to notice that there's, yes, there's grief and there's sadness, but there's also this thing that wells up inside of you where you begin to get angry at the injustice that you're experiencing, the pain that you're feeling. You begin to get angry in recognition that things are not as they should be. And what we're seeing right here is that it is exactly how Jesus is feeling deep inside of his soul as he looks at Mary weeping, as he looks at these different Jews that are also there weeping. It says that he is stirred within his soul and there's an anger that begins to build up in recognition that things are not as they should be. This is not right. This is an injustice and this is a pain that should not be taking place even though he is working all things for the glory and praise of his name. He continues on and he asks her this question, where have you laid his body? And they said to him, Lord, just come and see. And then comes the shortest, most powerful verse in all of Scripture, verse 35. It just simply says, Jesus wept. 
And what I love about this verse is he doesn't try to come and explain it. He doesn't try to come and say, hey, Mary, it's really not that bad. Turn that frown upside down, Charlie Brown, it's going to be okay. He doesn't come in and say, hey, don't worry about it. It's all working for my glory. He doesn't minimize it in any way. He simply sees her crying. He sees the other people that are crying. His heart breaks, and he enters in, and he weeps with her. Some of us are in the middle of that fog, and you're kind of wondering, okay, how is God processing this pain? What is he doing in the middle of my pain? And it's all right here in this text. We, we, we see this. This is what he does in the middle of that place. Even though uh, he's not solving it completely right now, that day is still to come. It says that he's simply seeing you and he's choosing to enter in. And as you weep, he is weeping alongside with you. Church, the presence of pain does not mean the absence of love. Do we know that? The presence of pain does not mean the absence of love. And it needs to be said because in the middle of pain, uh, it's an easy thing to forget. Even though Jesus spent the majority of his ministry, Scripture spends the majority of its time preparing us for this world that is not going to be devoid of pain until Christ returns and he makes all things brand new. I mean, he prepares us over and over again. Matthew 5.10, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's preparing us for this world that is not going to be devoid of pain. John 15.20, remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, then they will absolutely persecute you. And yes, he's saying, I, I have the power to perform miracles. Yes, I come and I intervene. Yes, I undo a lot of different things and I offer protection. Yet he's also going to say in Matthew 16, 24, if anyone wants to be my disciple, then you must deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. In other words, church, if you're following him, then there will be times of pain because his path leads ultimately to a cross. So it needs to be said because this is one of the first things that we easily forget in the middle of our pain, but it also needs to be said because it's easy to forget that our sin is the thing that's brought the whole thing on to begin with in a very general fashion. I mean, you remember how the whole thing breaks down in Genesis chapter 3. Sin enters the picture, everything's destroyed, Adam and Eve are hiding, they're shamed, they're hiding from the presence of God. You remember the question that God asked them as soon as he comes and sees them? What in the world have you done? They're in the middle of their hiding and God looks at them and he says, Adam, Eve, what have you done? Like, do you know what just, do you know the extent of what you've just done? Do you know what it's like to walk away from me in sin? Do you know the fallout that's about to take place? Like our, our relationship, the entirety of it, the whole thing's gonna be completely broken. Horizontally, like your relationship with one another, husband, wife, man, woman, humanity, it's all gonna be broken. The world, the, the whole fabric of the world is going to tear apart. Now there's going to be thorns and thistles in a ground that doesn't want to be worked. There's supposed to be unity here in the garden. Now there's going to be divisions. There's supposed to be peace, and now we're going to be talking about war. There's supposed to be health, and now we're going to be talking about sickness and death. There's supposed to be love, and now we're going to be talking about abuse and violence and hate and trafficking and abortion and racism and abandonment. And he's simply looking at them in the middle of this destruction and he's saying, what, what in the world have you done? Do you even know what you've just brought into this world? I heard a pastor once say that history is the story of man trying to find life apart from God and then blaming him when we don't like what we find. It's exactly right. And it's just on us. 
in a general sense, not in a linear one-to-one, this is, because, this is happening because of you, but in a general sense, this is on us. We're the ones that walked away. We're the ones that rebelled against him in sin. We're the ones who ushered in a world full of pain and violence and sadness and tears. And he's the one who, because of his infinite love, chose the cross so that he could be present with us in our mourning. And church, he's the one who, because of his infinite love, looked upon us from heaven, condescended from heaven, took on flesh, and willingly went to the cross so that he could set us free from the final sting of death. Church, the presence of your pain, it does not mean the absence of love. In a case we need a little bit more than just Mary and Martha's story, like it's going to continue on, and Luke's going to say that as Jesus rides in on the back of that donkey into Jerusalem that day, it says that he's going to weep one more time. There's not a lot that's going to make Jesus weep. Mary makes Jesus weep. Her pain makes Jesus weep. And this day as he's riding into Jerusalem on the back of that donkey, he looks over Jerusalem, and he knows that all of those shouts of Hosanna that day on Palm Sunday, they're going to quickly turn into shouts of crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And as he rides into Jerusalem on the back of that donkey, and he looks over the entirety of Jerusalem, and he knows about the rejection that's about to take place, it says that he weeps over the rebellion of Jerusalem. Nevertheless, he continues to move to the cross because he cannot deny his love. On Thursday, it's going to get a lot more heavy. This is the other time that Jesus is going to weep. This time it's going to be Judas, one of his good friends and one of his followers who betrays him and sells him out for 30 pieces of silver. A little later that night, he's going to take a few of his disciples out to the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's going to ask them to pray. And of course, they're going to keep falling asleep. And he's going to go into the garden and he's going to be praying. Because it's going to be the night of his betrayal. The night before all of the, everything takes place. The night before all of his torture. And the night before he goes to the cross. And he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, hey, I need you to pray with me. And it says that he goes into the garden. And as he prays, his spirit is so tormented inside of him. It's that same thing, it's that, it's that turning and turning and turning, it's that weeping and mourning that takes place over the pain physically that's about to happen, the abandonment, the betrayal, all the agony that's about to take place, so much so that he asks the Father, and he says, Father, if there is any other way, let it be, let it, let it come about. Yet here it is, at the end of the day, it's not my will, but your will be done. And coming out of that time of prayer, as he looks over the entirety of Jerusalem, and he knows the sting of betrayal that's coming with Judas. He knows what's about to happen with Peter when one of his most faithful disciples denies even knowing him. He still makes a decision to keep moving to the cross because he can never deny his love. And you know exactly what takes place on Friday. Friday happens the wee hours of the morning. Later that night, that Thursday night after Garden of Gethsemane, he stands trial. He stands before Pilate, an innocent man accused. Pilate asks him to make a defense, and he simply says, I am, as you say that I am. Pilate turns him over to the people, these same people that were cheering for him days before. They've now turned and said, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Peter's going to deny knowing him. The disciples are going to be hiding in silence. Mary's there. She knows. She has faith. Everyone else is going to walk away. Shortly after the words, they're going to take the whips and the they're going to scourge his back. They're going to beat him to within inches of his life. And after they do that, then they're going to take his hands and his feet. And they're going to nail him to a cross. 
For the next few hours, he's going to hang on that cross with a couple other criminals. He's going to be painfully humiliated there upon the cross. And in his final moments, he's going to look upon the crowds and he's going to simply say, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they do. And it's exactly what's going to take place for any and all who come to faith in the life, death, and subsequent resurrection of Jesus Christ. Forgiveness will come to all who believe. Because even in the middle of our sin and even in the middle of us, our wandering and in the worst of our pain that we can dole out on him, he can never, ever, ever deny his love. Church, the presence of your pain, it just does not mean the absence of love. If you've ever wondered how much he loves you, if you've ever wondered how much he cares, if you've ever wondered what he's doing in the middle of your pain, all you need to do is look at the cross to be able to understand how far he was willing to go to be present with you in your pain. I want to wrap up with this one right here. A few years back, some of our good friends were going through probably one of the most difficult trials you and I could possibly imagine. I'm going to spare, spare some of the details there, but um, it was a miraculous pregnancy that took place nearing your 40s. They'd been praying for it for years. They thought it was impossible. Everybody was celebrating with them when that news came through. A few months later, the doctors come and tell them that, hey, this is not going to work out, and your babies are not going to be able to live outside of the womb. The whole friendship group would come around, and there's a lot of mourning, and there's a lot of pain. And, of course, for the next few months, she has to carry this around, and she starts a blog and begins to write a, write a little bit about how God is meeting her in the middle of this sadness and in the middle of her pain. I just want you to read, I just want to read a little bit from uh, what she had to say. Psalm 23, 4, to give you some insight, I have a picture in my mind of where I am emotionally. It's from Psalm 23, 4. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. She says that I know that God has never called us to go somewhere he's never been before. And I just imagine walking through the valley hand in hand with Jesus. Nothing's said. He just squeezes my hand, reminding me that he's walked this road before. And because he has, the valley is just what it says, the shadow of death. Because Christ conquered death on the cross, it is swallowed up in victory. Oh, what the resurrection means to me today. It has always been my hope, but it has taken on such a deeper shade of meaning for me now. It is not only my hope, it is, my, it is the hope for my little girls. I know that they will not go to death, but to life abundant. And that gives me incredible peace and joy that they will be living the life that I look forward to living. Church, I don't know where you are today. I don't know if that is where you are today or if that may be coming in the future. Or God may spare you for the rest of your days, and this may be your friendship group or family or people that are around you every single day. All I know is that he is a trustworthy king, even when you can't understand what's going on. And I know that the presence of pain, it does not mean the absence of love. It's why Peter's going to simply say, cast all of your anxieties and your burdens upon him, knowing that he cares for you.